she taking them? She didn't take them. They begged her to go. Where is she taking them? A long way from you. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we try to decipher our will not babies be warlords and other such cryptic writings in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 15, which begins with Morton Joe entering his great domed harem, and it ends with the sound of drums stirring the war boys to action. So here we are in Friday, and it is time to enter Joe's vault, where he keeps his wives. Now, Today's vocabulary word is the one that I used in the opener, harem. I think a lot of people assume that it's meant to refer specifically to the group of women, but I learned today that the word harem, also known as zenana in South Asia, properly refers to the domestic spaces that are reserved for the women of the house in a Muslim family and are inaccessible to adult males except for close relations. This private space has been traditionally understood as serving the purposes of maintaining the modesty, privilege, and protection of women. A harem may house a man's wife or wives and concubines, as in royal harems of the past, their prepubescent male children, unmarried daughters, female domestic workers, and other unmarried female relatives. I'm glad you gave us that definition of harem. That word is definitely completely misunderstood. Now granted... This space is a harem, but when you're talking about the modern understanding of the word harem as far as a group of women kept for one man, that also does fit in this scenario. Yes, and actually this scenario is more closely aligned with what most people think of as a harem. These women are not necessarily there voluntarily, and they are a group of women meant for one man. And that is a narrow part of the definition of a harem. I like that a harem is a more general term for the living quarters, the sanctuary, the private spaces of women. On the one hand, it was their space. It was their sanctuary away from having to deal with men. But on the other hand, I'm sure there were instances where it was their required space. Absolutely. Which is exactly what this is for. They don't get a chance to wander around the Citadel. This is their entire world until Joe needs them for something. As I mentioned in that definition, close relations. Uh huh. Do you think Joe, when he needs them for something, goes to them or has them brought to him? He goes to them. Like he will show up, he will open the vault door, and then he will, in some instances, pick them out one by one. In some instances, he will just have them entertain him like sing music or mm-hmm. something like that they are breeders they are captives but they're also his entertainment it's one of those things that's explored in the furiosa comic okay you get to see joe interacting and just how entitled he is around them i haven't read the comics but i definitely get that feeling you understand pretty quick even without having the context of the written words exactly what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. so as he's running into this space he's shouting splendid and harrod and that is one of his wives now i looked up the name and i found out that it's welsh 
It's a feminine given name, and that in English it translates to much loved one. I do like the names that he has given his wives, and I assume that he personally named them Mm -hmm. because he's that conceited. But they are kind of sweet names, like Splendid and Much Loved One. Like, those are nice. Well, Herod got a good name. Then you've got Toast and Cheeto and well, the Dag. Yes. We haven't gotten that far yet. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I know he has a favorite. Is that Splendid? Yes. Okay. That's why she was the first one he called out for. She's also the one who's very pregnant. Is Splendid his favorite because she's very pregnant? Or because she entertains him the best. She sings the best. She plays the piano the best. I think he just favored her generally, and the fact that she became pregnant helped boost that. Okay. I might have to go back and read again, but I don't recall if there was another reason. Okay. You should read the comic before we record next. Yeah, yeah, probably should. We'll explore that more when the subject of Splendid being the favorite comes up. That is definitely going to get discussed. Yes. Turns out, Ingherid, it has a long association with Welsh royalty, especially in history and myth. And as we move about the sanctuary a little bit, you can see there are just piles and piles of books. These women, in Joe's own twisted way, are well taken care of and well provided for with education and art. Oh, yeah. And music and literature. It's very twisted, but... Intellectually speaking, they are the smartest, the most cultured people in the wasteland right now. It's just there's this gigantic caveat that they are also sexually abused on the regular and used as breeding stock for a megalomaniac. Yeah. That's not a good trade-off. No. And it's a trade-off that they're not willing to put up with. Exactly. As we cut to a high angle above Joe, you see written on the floor right next to a little freshwater pool that they have in the middle of the room, it says very specifically, if you read it like a normal person, it says our babies will not be warlords. If you're a weirdo like me and you see this channel cut in the floor as a dividing line and you read it as two different columns, you get the nonsense that I said at the top of the minute. I was wondering what the heck you said. You said it so fast that I missed it, but what? Yeah. Why would you ever read it that way? Well, not that I actually watched the Walking Dead television show, but in one of the very first episodes, the main character, a guy named Rick, so I like him already, wakes up (laughs) in a hospital and there is a wing of the hospital that is barricaded off because there are zombies on the other side of these doors and the doors say, don't open, dead inside. And it's written in two different columns. So if you read it across in two different lines, it says don't dead open inside instead of don't open dead inside. And so this reading across, you get how it's supposed to be reading. But if you do it the Walking Dead style, it says our will not babies be warlords. Okay. And it sounds like nonsense because that's what it is. It is nonsense. I will admit that your assessment is fair based on your personal experience of witnessing the opposite. Yeah. You're still silly, though. It is. In this shot, we see one of the main thesis statements of the wives that they recognize that they are being used as breeding stock. And it's explained in the comics that once you're selected as breeding stock, if you fail to produce a healthy heir within three pregnancies, you get thrown from the top of the citadel. Whoa! So you have three chances to produce a healthy heir. If you don't, you're gone. 
I guess you're lucky he gives you more than one chance at all. In this cruel society, yeah, three, I guess, isn't that bad. So currently, there are five. And it makes me wonder about the history of this particular harem. How many women have passed through it? Yes. Is that addressed or explored in the comics? It might be, but I don't remember that detail off the top of my head. Okay. But I imagine that the sons that Joe currently has most likely came from women that he captured and forced into this breeding program. Also makes me wonder how many of the current batch of war boys we see are actually Joe's sons. See, that's the thing. I don't know if Joe would keep one of his defective children, which just is a really odd way of saying it. it well, I mean, the two sons we know are quote-unquote defective. I guess. But I don't think he would hold on to them unless they're viable. I imagine that he probably has had progeny that just did not survive childhood. Right. So do you think he only has two slash three viable offspring? I think so. Wow. That's not good. That's considering, I mean, at the moment he has five wives and he has obviously had more before them because none of them are old enough to be the parents, Mm -hmm. the mothers of the three that we know about and to only have three children who have gone on to actually live lives wow yeah those are not good odds the wasteland has a high infant mortality rate yes at this point if i were joe i would just be grateful for the three i have and start setting them up maybe as a team a la master blaster to take over well, like, how long one... is he going to keep trying and hold out hope? I think he's going to keep trying until the day that he dies. Okay, say he is one year from his death and he manages to impregnate a woman who nine months from then gives birth to a perfectly healthy baby boy. That baby boy will then be three months old when the leader of this cult dies. That's not an heir. Someone has to run that place until that heir is old enough. And we have seen time and time again in history, very bad things happen when that situation is in play. I imagine that Joe probably has some sort of plan or he's just a maniac. He's so absorbed in himself that he doesn't believe that there could be any chance that he could die in a couple of days. I definitely buy that. He thinks that he's going to live forever and he's going to be sexually viable forever. Well, men are sexually viable forever. Well, I meant forever in like a literal, like, I'm never going to die way. I realize that men can father children way longer than women can give birth to children. But that's an entirely different set of biology rules that I have not researched at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's a subject that I am unprepared to discuss. But getting back to what I said, these women are not interested in any of their offspring becoming part of Joe's dynasty. In the next shot we get, where we're doing a little pan around shot of Joe, we get the second thesis statement of the wives. Above the doorway, they have written, who killed the world? It's another example of people that just haven't paid attention to the opening monologue from Road Warrior. Like, if you've paid attention to the movies up to this point, you would know 
that the people who killed the world were the two mighty warrior tribes who went to war and touched off a blaze which engulfed them all. Although you could, I guess, get a little more cerebral with it and blame the people that used up the resources that caused the resource wars, but it's beside the point. Well, what they're pointing out, first of all, they're being a little bit sarcastic. Second of all, who killed the world? People in power who abused that power, like Joe, killed the world. Yeah. So they're pointing out to him that the state that the world is in is his fault, is Joe's fault. And he really does embody, alongside the bullet farmer and the people eater, the types of people that led the world to ruin. Mm-hmm. Basically, the military-industrial complex. Yeah. Without getting too political, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like that's coming up a lot again in media now. You think of The Last Jedi, the eighth Star Wars movie, and they have an entire subplot where they jab at the military-industrial complex, being like, these people are getting rich off of suffering, and they don't care because they're hanging out at the casino planet, feeding coins into droids and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah, and we have this example of these three leaders of societies who have a monopoly on a resource. Yep. And they use that monopoly to exert control and to exercise their power in very twisted ways and it's not a one-for-one about how our society is now but it's not that far off you get to understand listeners the bullet farmer people eater and norton joe they're caricatures but the thing about caricatures is that they're based on real things absolutely you go to the boardwalk and you see the blown up heads on the little bodies and the bodies are doing activities it's like yeah those are cartoons But they're still technically based on real people. And that's what cinema is all about. Creating little caricatures of real life. So Joe is standing there in the middle of the room and he's wondering, where are they? And then from off screen, we hear the voice of someone new. It is a woman named Miss Giddy and she is shouting out, they are not your property. And a Morton Joe fires back with, Miss Giddy. But he doesn't quite say it like that. He actually says it a little bit more like... um, you know, remember in I Love Lucy, where Desi Arnaz was like, Lucy, and Morton Joe's like, Miss Giddy. I almost yeah, expect like, him to say, you got some splaining to do. Right, like playful scolding. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very weird tone. It is. <laughs> it does tell me that he has a certain level of trust in Miss Giddy. And it might even be quite a bit of trust in her. I actually interpreted it as... as He recognizes that she is a necessary evil. Mm. She is spending day in and day out educating his wives. And he recognizes that the more people are educated, the more better equipped they are to oppose tyranny. And so he looks at Miss Giddy as a troublemaker. He realizes something is amiss. And then suddenly she's there. So he's like, oh, you troublemaking woman. What are you trying to pull this time around? And he can't get rid of her because she's a history woman. She's a word burger, I think, is one of the other names that they have for these type of people. The history of their civilization is literally etched into her skin. She is a living textbook. And so she's one of those invaluable people. Mm -hmm. But invaluable people can still be troublesome. And I think that's the tone he's taking with her. Behind Miss Giddy (laughs) on the wall, we find the third... And final statement from the wives, where it says, we are not things. 
So they've hit on a couple of important subjects. Our offspring do not belong to you. You are the kind of person that destroyed the world. You do not own us. And those three statements is what the rest of the movie is about. I definitely appreciate the clarity that's being provided to us. There's a lot of discussion about how the viewer sees a movie versus how the director intended and who's right. And there's a point of view that once the director puts the movie out into the world, he no longer has control Mm -hmm. and the viewer is now right. However they want to see the movie is correct because it then becomes individualized for the viewer. So one way for the director to help guide people on how to interpret this movie is to put, like you said, your thesis statements right there in writing, literally, for everybody to read. This is what the movie's about. Mm-hmm. So I definitely appreciate that clarity. Yeah, George Miller is literally spelling it out for you. Yes. <laughs> Just in case you don't get the rest of the movie. The phrase, the writing on the wall. <laughs> yeah. First of all, another biblical reference right there. Mm-hmm. It's practically beating you over the head that this is the message. It could also be related back to the tell, mm-hmm. the writing on the wall. Exactly. Getting back to Miss Giddy. Yeah. The first thing we see of her, this is our May Swayze stand-in since we lost Sheila Florence back in 1991. The old woman brandishing a shotgun at Hugh Keysburn. However, However, Miss Giddy is not quite as bold as May Swayze because she never pulls the trigger. I'm so disappointed. May would have shot him in the face. Well, she would have tried. May was classically... A terrible shot. Well, she was, but she was shooting at a group of motorcycles driving toward her, if I remember correctly. That was shot number two. The first shot, everyone was standing still, and she was like oh, barely was 10 feet away. shot. She wasn't trying to hit them. Oh, okay. I gotcha. She wasn't willing to murder at that point. At that point, she was okay. just trying to scare them. That kind of redeems her in my eyes a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and then later for her second shot, when she was trying to kill them, that was never going to happen. She was never going to hit somebody. So if you combine those two situations, you get Miss Giddy here. Yeah. But if it was May, she would have shot him in the face. I recognize that it would have been terribly inappropriate, but how amazing would it have been if... Joe turned around, saw Miss Giddy with that shotgun, and then reacted exactly how he did in that first movie. Oh, man. Yeah, that would have been a lot of fun. There's no way he could have physically done it because his face is so covered. It just wouldn't have worked, but that was one of the all-time great moments in that movie And in the franchise as a whole. Oh my god, yes. And I I would have loved to see it again. And to be honest, I'm not sure that Hugh Keysburn uh, has that kind of acting in him anymore. Really? Such the physicality of his face, I just don't see it. I don't think he'd be able to reach that high of a pitch anymore. I definitely see him as a much more growly, stoic actor now. I think he still has enough crazy in him (laughs) to be able to do something like that. I just think he'd be a bit more deeper, not quite as high of a register. Yeah. So before we get too far afield, Miss Giddy is played by Jennifer Hagen. IMDb says that she is best known for her role in this movie. She was also in the 1996 movie Jack, 
starring Robin Williams about the guy who has the genetic thing where he looks like a 40-year-old even though he's only 10. Oh. She played Jane at 16. It's been a long time since I've seen anything Jack-related, so I don't think I actually saw the movie to put her in the film. I've seen the movie, but I haven't the faintest idea who she was in the film. In 2011, she was in Paper Giants, colon, The Birth of Cleo, and in 1987, she was in Gallagher's Travels, where she played Maggie. Jennifer Hagen was born on October 5th, 1943, in Perth, Western Australia. She attended and graduated from the National Institute of Dramatic Art, like most Australian actors. And she was, at one point, a member of both the Melbourne Theatre Company and the Sydney Theatre Company. So she did a lot of on-stage work, and I think she is still primarily doing stage work. Aside from that, she also has 62 IMDb credits. Oh, wow. So she's been busy in film as well. Oh, yeah. Film and television and shorts and things. Like many other actors from the Mad Max series, one of her first roles was on the show Homicide uh-huh, yep. in 1967. She also appeared in other shows that people might be familiar with, including Matlock Police and A Country Practice. Okay, yeah. One production that actually surprised me, she was in For Love Alone. What? Yeah. She played a character named Manette. And I cannot for the life of me place her in that movie. Manette. She was probably in Australia, that she, part of the movie? She was probably in one of those early scenes. Like, Jennifer Hagen has very, like, her eyebrows specifically are what really stand out about her. So if we went back and watched For Love Alone specifically to see her, uh-huh. we might be able to pick her out. But I don't know exactly what scene she'd be in or who Manette is. Mm-hmm. So... I guess we missed something during hiatus. <laughs> so getting back into the minute, Joe is angrily stomping towards Miss Giddy, and she continues shouting at him, where before she said they're not your property, she continues saying that you cannot own a human being, and that sooner or later someone pushes back. It was so incredibly inevitable that someone would push back. Not only are they oppressed and abused, but you are also teaching them. And the more someone becomes learned, the more they know that this is not okay. Mm -hmm. I think Joe is so hopped up on his own supply that he believes that he can just terrorize people into being completely devoted to him. He saw the wives the same way he sees the war boys, except the war boys... They live to serve Joe, and they know nothing else. And just like you said, the wives have nothing but contempt for Joe, and all of the learning is at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. And if he had opened his eyes to the situation, he probably would have realized that sooner. But that's not the case. So Joe only has one question for Giddy. He wants to know, where is she taking them? So he's already gotten to the conclusion that... Furiosa has stolen his wives away. That's his hypothesis. And Miss Giddy fires back saying that she didn't take them. They begged her to go. This whole escape plan was the wives' idea. We've mentioned before that he's a megalomaniac. I think this is more evidence of that, that it doesn't even occur to him that they don't want to be there. In his mind, he treats them fantastic. He treats them like queens. They have clean food and clean water, and they have education and art, and they have a caretaker and protection and safety and security. They have all this stuff that 
most people in this world no longer have. So, of course, they would be grateful to him and devoted to him because he provides those things. And he doesn't see from their point of view, yes, they get all those things that nobody else gets, but at a very high price. So it would never even occur to him that they might run away on purpose. Real quick, just to touch back to the May Swayze connection, I checked the Internet Firearms database, and while it doesn't come right out and say specifically that Miss Giddy is using the same Charles Parker 1878 side-by-side 12-gauge shotgun, Mm -hmm. it also doesn't not say that it's the same gun, because on the Fury Road page, it says 12-gauge double-barreled shotgun, and then the reference picture it uses is that same Charles Parker side-by-side. So for all intents and purposes... From what you see in the movies, Miss Giddy is pretty much using the same gun. Ooh, I like that. It's not canonically the same exact weapon, but it's the same style. Yes. And that's what's really important. It's like Max having the little German gun on him in uh, Thunderdome that Bubba Zanetti had on him in Mad Max. Despite the firearm being very similar, the efficacy of it is very different as Joe is able to close the distance, grab the barrel of the gun, and point it upwards... And only then does Miss Giddy fire, and so the shell just goes harmlessly into the ceiling. Yeah, that's disappointing. Could have been the end of the movie. It could have been, but it isn't. So with Miss Giddy in his clutches, he pulls her close and he just growls out, where is she taking them? And Miss Giddy, God bless her, says, a long way from you. She seems like the type of person that can be trusted to keep her mouth shut. She has risked her life to cover for these women as long as she can, and she is going to give her life. It is going to be slow and painful, and she is willing to do it. Yeah, I like Miss Giddy. She's cool. Yep. What I also find kind of cool is the transition that we get, because Joe pulls on Miss Giddy, and he pulls her across the screen, and that's the wipe transition that we get. It is. The editing in this movie is just phenomenal. It's so good. It's so fun. I do love the transition between the color palette. Yes. We go from all these well-lit warms to poorly lit cools Yeah. with the rays coming down so stark. It's very nice. Yep. So we are now in the Citadel's blood bank, and this sad sack sitting in the middle of the screen... That would be Nux, a.k.a. the war boy that's running on empty that the organic mechanic was talking about the other day. So the guy hanging upside down, is that Max? Yep. Okay. I figured it was because that's just how the story goes. But physically, I could not ID him as Max because mm. obviously it's not Tom Hardy. It's a stunt double. Yeah. And granted, there are three different war boys hooked up to blood bags right now. You can't see... The war boy that's sitting closest to the screen, you can't see his blood bag very well, but you can see Max in the middle, and then you can see some other schmuck hanging off at the end of the row. Yes. Which, we don't get his story. We don't find out about any of these other blood bags. Mm-mm. And as Nux is sitting there, he's kind of nervously shifting, and then we hear it in the distance, just sort of a low rumble at first, and then it starts getting louder and louder, and then we cut outside, and we get our first view of the doof wagon. And it's a close-up on the drums. Yes. I wonder how often the doof wagon gets rolled out. Mm. Like, does it take 
a war party like this one to pull it out? Or does it get to come out a little bit more often? Oh, I think it only comes out on special occasions like this. Do you think it specifically only comes out for Joe? Or do you think if there was a war party that didn't include Joe, it might still come out? I think what's important is the quantity of vehicles involved. Like if Joe is going out to wage war, or if Rictus is going out to wage war, if there are multiple vehicles going out at a single time, they're going to use the doof wagon because the doof wagon is the signal carrier. These drums are one part of it, and arguably the most important part of it. We're going to see that later. We got to wait until the fleet actually gets out into the wasteland. But in the meantime, we get to see four guys, four big drums, and they're just wailing away. They're signaling everybody that, hey, it's time for things to happen. Yes. And as we cut back to Nux, I love Nicholas Holt's performance here. We're not going to talk about Nicholas Holt today because we already talked about Miss Giddy. But the way he performs it, he starts off, he's slumped down, he's very sorry looking. And the more he hears the drums, the straighter up he gets, the more excited and energized he becomes, despite the fact that he is literally attached to a blood bag. This is literally what he lives for. Uh Uh-huh. This is the thing that trips his trigger, that rows his boat. Like, this is it. He hears the drums echoing tonight, but she hears only echoes of some quiet conversation. (laughs) Get it? Because they filmed in Namibia? Yes. Africa? Yes. We get a little bit more of Nux. He does like a quick look to the left, and then we cut to the elevator room. We've got the doof wagon lowering down from a crane it's not on a platform or anything like that they just hooked on and they're lowering it down there's another car up to the top right of the frame that's getting lowered down the same way and i don't know if this war boy swinging through the middle of the screen is if he's on a zip line or if he's just on like a rope that he's swinging around i imagine if they have zip lines going across from spire to spire that would be mildly terrifying i think he's on a zip line I'm watching him come in. You can see him the whole time. You're not paying attention because, of course, your attention is drawn to the doof wagon. But if you look for him, you can see him the entire time. He is definitely on the zip line. I would like to draw a parallel with the verticality of this scene and how the vehicles are prepped and stored. And the raising and the lowering and the organization is just like the hydroponic room. Mm, Very true. They use vertical space to their advantage and it's very effective yeah the citadel is a relatively small footprint but they have all this vertical space that you would think in a society that has lost a lot of its technological progress they wouldn't be able to use but joe or perhaps the people who were there before joe set up these simple machines that can make use of that space speaking of machines As the war boy swings in, he lands between two different vehicles. The one on the left is called Razor Cola, a.k.a. Caltrop Number 6, a.k.a. Max's Interceptor post-makeover. Oh, okay. And then the car on the right is the Nux car. Ah, okay, I can see. Yep, that's definitely the Interceptor. So Nux's car is a highly modified 1934 Chevrolet five-window coupe. They made really quick work of Max's car. Yes, they did. I don't think we have a really great sense of time scale going on, but it could only have been maybe a couple of hours. Well, see, the thing is, we don't know how long it was between 
Max's escape attempt and Furiosa leaving because we had the title card swing in. That's very true. It could have been days. Yep, that's very, very true. So they could have ground off all the paint and the rust and then install all the extra things to get this thing into fighting shape. All right. And really overhaul it. So we won't get to see them in action or anything like that because we've once again reached the end of the minute. But just being able to see them here, it's pretty cool because they are going to factor in some very important scenes coming down the line. So that's all for us here at the end of this week. Be sure to come back on Monday because it's all hands on deck as the Warboys retrieve their steering wheels from the Shrine of the V8. But Nux isn't really content to just sit around once he realizes that his Lancer has developed delusions of grandeur. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 15 of Fury Road. See you next time.